Romans chapter 10 for our next installment of our what is now an annual thing in January where we consider the task of making disciples, really sort of unpacking different layers or different facets of disciple making as we consider our mission statement here at Crosspoint. So Romans chapter 10, we're going to be talking about evangelism and how that fits into the mission of God. And while you're turning there, let me run by you three sayings or phrases that you don't have to show of hands for this one, but I'm sure at some point we've all said these. Okay, number one, someone else will do it. Again, don't, don't raise your hand. Uh, number two, someone else can do it better. I could do it, but then someone else can do it better. Or number three, it's not my responsibility. I laugh at that. I said that one this morning. I saw something, I was like, that's not my responsibility. And I thought, ah, oh, the sermon is for me today. Uh, yeah, I think we've all probably used those sayings at one point in time. Maybe, maybe at work, you know, it's like something needs to be done, and you're like, well, somebody else will get to it, you know. Or, oh, it's not my responsibility. That's so, so-and-so down the hall. That's not, that's not my thing. Um, I think sometimes we probably say them in the church, right? A need is, is talked about. Maybe in the community time we mention a need, and maybe in our minds we think, well, someone else will do it, that proverbial someone. Someone else will do that. Or we think, well, yeah, I could do it, but someone else could do it better, so I'm not going to say anything. Or we say maybe, well, that's not my responsibility. That's not my thing. I don't have to do that. I think if we're honest, all of us at one point, we, we use those sorts of phrases in work, maybe in church, in home life, whatever it is. But I think if we're also honest, I think at one point we've probably used those phrases to describe the task of evangelism. We think about the task of telling people about Jesus. Maybe we think about an opportunity where a loved one or a family friend or a coworker are sort of that door, and we think, this is my moment I could share. And then we think, well, someone else someone else will do it. Or we think, well, I, I could share, but I'm not that great. Someone else could do it better than me. Or maybe we think, well, you know what? That's not my responsibility. That's the pastor's job. right? I get them in the door, and the pastor, he's the one who tells them about Jesus. We apply that sort of thinking to the task of evangelism. We have this opportunity, this great opportunity, this open door from Colossians 4, and we look to someone else to do it. In our series this month on discipleship, we're focusing on personal and corporate evangelism. So this task of proclaiming, of going and and telling people about Jesus, and the role that evangelism plays in the larger issue of making disciples which is what we're called to do, as you know, the Great Commission. It's what we're called as believers to do, and it's what we here at Crosspoint are called to do, make disciples. And today, as we're going to examine a few very familiar verses from Paul's letter to the Romans, what we're going to find is that God's plan of salvation includes not only the Christ's atoning work on the cross, the the really good stuff of what Jesus has done for us, but it also includes us as followers of Jesus proclaiming the good news of that work that Jesus has done to lost people. In other words, the task of of the good news, we think about the good news, it's just all about what Jesus has done. Well, yes, but included in that is now the task for you and I to tell other people about what Jesus has done so that they might share in the same joy that we have having found Christ. So our main idea today, what I hope to show us from this text, is that every believer has the responsibility to proclaim the gospel so that unbelievers may hear, believe, and be saved. 
every believer has the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. And we'll unpack what some of that looks like and give you some ideas and things like that. But every believer has that responsibility to proclaim the gospel so that lost people can hear it, believe it, and be saved. So if you have a Bible, stand, turning to Romans chapter 10, if you're not there already. We're going to read verses 13 through 15. Romans chapter 10, if you're there, say word. Excellent. Word of the Lord says this. Remember, this is Paul writing here. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we ask in this moment for Holy Spirit guidance that you would open our eyes to the scriptures, very familiar verses, but help us to learn something new, perhaps see them in a new light. And we pray that your spirit would be moving upon our hearts and our minds so that it isn't just an exercise of listening, not just 30 minutes of entertainment, but it is sitting at the feet of Jesus to receive the words that you have for us. Teach us, shape us, give us humility to receive and empower us then to go and to live out what you've called us to do as disciple makers. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in approaching today's scripture, what I want to do is to lay it out in three truths, three sort of fundamental truths about God's plan for salvation. Okay, first of all, we need to understand that the message of Jesus is an exclusive gospel. The message of Jesus is an exclusive gospel. I don't know if anybody in here is in any exclusive clubs. Um, I'm not, I guess I run in those echelons, but there's something about the gospel that makes it exclusive. Look again at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the, who? Lord will be saved. Now let's think about this verse in context. You're familiar with the letter of Paul to the Romans. What has Paul been arguing in the first chapters of the book? Begins in chapter 1. He lays it out, chapter 2, well into chapter 3. He's laying out the argument of the universal need for salvation. That every single person, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile or where you're from or what language you speak, every single person is in need of salvation. He makes this argument that every single person stands condemned. Let me give you a few examples. Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness, the ungodliness of men. He moves into chapter 2, verse 5, and he talks about how um, we are storing up wrath for ourselves because of our hardness of hearts, the impenitent heart. And then he keeps going and unpacking, and he finally comes to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which we probably all have memorized, where he says, some people who are especially bad have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that what your translation says? No, mine has that really pesky word, all, a three-letter word, and it just really gets to you. He says, all have sinned and fall short. So it doesn't matter where you come from or what sort of religious heritage or who you might appeal to for, well, I've got these people in my past. He says it doesn't matter because all people have sinned 
They fall short of God's glory, and therefore they stand condemned. That's the argument he builds on and makes at the beginning. So the question then becomes, okay, well, Paul, if, if everybody stands condemned, how do we get saved? And that's exactly where he goes in his letter. If you ask people today, how, would you, how do you get saved? First of all, they might not even acknowledge that you need to be saved. But if they did, who knows what you'll get? Well, believe this thing, follow that, be genuine, you know, help people. A whole gamut of, of responses of how do I get saved. But Paul only gives one. Paul, how do I get saved? He says, Jesus. Whereas condemnation due to sin is universal, it's everywhere, it applies to everybody, Paul says that salvation from sin is exclusive, and it's only found in Christ. Let me say that again. So condemnation from sin is universal. Everybody's in the same boat. It's the SS, uh uh-oh. We're in it, we're sinful, we're condemned. But he says salvation from sin is exclusive. It's found only in one person and that's Jesus. God has provided for us an exclusive answer to salvation. Verse 13 here, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not everyone who calls on whatever prophet that you follow, everyone who calls on whatever religion tickles your fancy at the moment, uh, whatever works-based effort, feel good, and I feel like I'm doing my thing will be saved. No, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13 is pointing us to that one person, that one name, to reference Acts 4.12, by which we must be saved. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. That's why if you follow the trajectory of Paul's letter, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, everybody's sinful, doesn't matter who you are, chapter 3, 23, all have sinned, goes into four a little bit. He's getting glimpses of a salvation in Christ. Chapter five, it's peace with God. Chapter six, uh, new life, raised to walk in the newness of life. Chapter seven, I'm being changed. Who can save me? Who can, who can save me from this wretched man? It's Jesus. Chapter eight, verse one, exclamation point. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Not for those who try hard. Not for those who do their best. Not for those who are genuine in what they believe, but only for those who are in Christ Jesus. The truth is, God has made only one provision for salvation. He's got one plan and one plan only. One solution. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus. And it's not a proxy faith. It's not a, I'm saved because my parents were, or because I'm at the church, or my name's on the roll. It's only a salvation through a personal faith in the Lord Jesus and the work that he has done on the cross to save us. It's not found in any other religious leader, no prophet. I know in our day and age, the the notion of an exclusive salvation is very offensive to people out in the culture. You know, you can believe in God all you want to. Everybody believes in God and or, or whatever weird religion you want to. And people like the weirder, the better, the more random, the better. But as soon as you talk about Jesus, and as soon as you begin to say, well, no, actually, Jesus is, he's not a way, he is, he's the way. Well, then suddenly you are the, the bigot. You're the hater. You're the radical, exclusive person that doesn't care what I believe and is so uh, intolerant of people. 
Believe whatever you want, but just don't believe that yours is the only belief. That's the sort of thinking. Exclusivism, this idea that there's only one way, it's, it's very unpopular in our culture. But you may actually be surprised to find that it's actually unpopular in the church today. This notion that, well, we th- I mean, it's very Bible truth that Jesus is the only way. It's actually unpopular in large sections of our church today. Let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, Lifeway did a study in 2016. They did a survey. So it's a few years old, but it's, it's not too old where they started out by just asking random people, everybody, uh, do you think that God accepts the worship of all religions? Just the basic question, do you think all religions are valid, you know, God accepts them, you know, as if God is sitting up there and saying, look, do what you can, find your way, and it'll all make it to me. Okay, well, 64% said yes. Now, I'm not shocked by that because that's just 64% of Americans in general, the small minority of Americans who are actually Christians, so... 64% is not surprising. But then they said, okay, evangelicals, people that would be in the same boat as you and me, most likely, people who say the Bible is authoritative, you need personal faith in Jesus, you need to be born again, that sort of camp. They asked them the same thing. They, They worded it a little different, and they said, do you believe that hell is a real place where God will send people who don't personally trust in Jesus? Well, only 84% of evangelicals affirm that. So suddenly we've lost 16% who said, I just don't know that I could say that everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell. We're losing people. Then last year in 2022, Ligonier did their sort of biannual state of the church survey. If you're looking for some good reading this afternoon, Google it. Ligonier Ministries, state of the church. It will blow your mind. It will shock you. Some of the things that evangelicals, people in our churches who sit in our chairs every Sunday are affirming. This was the statement put put to the people. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That was the statement put out there. Of the evangelicals who responded, 56% agreed with that. So that's half. If we take that at face value, that means half the people in this room right now think that you can get to God some way other than Jesus. That at the end of the day, you know, God, he's going to grade on the curve. He's going to give you some half credit for what you did, what you knew, and it'll all be okay. Many people in our culture and even in our churches are unwilling to accept that the gospel is exclusive. That there is only one way. There's only one way to Jesus. But Paul is very clear. Salvation is only for those who call upon the name of the Lord. Salvation is only for those who are found in Christ. So it doesn't matter how sincere we are in our beliefs, how uh, committed we are to whatever system, how much money we give, how many people we help, how many water wells we dig. It doesn't matter all of those things. What matters is, have I called upon the name of the Lord? So the question for you this morning is, have you called on the name of the Lord? I would never presume to think that people sitting in a church building are genuinely saved. Plenty of lost people sit in our churches every Sunday. So the question is, have you called on the name of the Lord? Are you here this morning sort of keeping a tally of attendance? Say, God, I was there 40 Sundays out of the year. I'm good to go. You're here. Look at, look at that good thing I did this morning. I dropped my money in the plate. You know, I come here and I... I follow this, and I listen to the sermon, and then I go, and I, I believe who knows what during the week. 
Or are you here because you say, I've called upon the name of the Lord? I came from this thing. I came from that thing. I've believed all sorts of stuff in the past, but I'm calling on the name of the Lord. If that's not you this morning, if you've not done that, then I want to challenge you to do so. To ask you, who else would you trust other than the Lord? What other system, what other uh, belief or worldview could you look to other than the Lord? Who is the maker of all things? Jesus. Who is the perfect God-man? Jesus. Who is the one who comes to us in our sin? Jesus. Who is the one who pays that sacrifice? Jesus. Who is the one who satisfies the wrath of God? Romans 1.18. Jesus. Not found in any system or works or worldview or sheer effort. It's found only in Jesus. And if you are here this morning or you're watching online and you've not called upon the name of the Lord, don't walk out the door without doing so. We talked about in Sunday school this morning, no one's guaranteed tomorrow. No one's guaranteed five minutes from now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't walk out of here without it. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, the question for you and me, are we ashamed? of our exclusive gospel? Are we apologetic when we talk to people about Jesus? Hey, I want to give you some good news about Jesus. I know it sounds like I'm sort of saying no to everything else, but I just want you to consider, sorry for that. Or are we with boldness and gentleness saying, this is the only way. And I'm not going to apologize for it because I didn't make it. I didn't choose it. It's God's way. Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would I not be ashamed of the gospel, he says? Because it's the power of God for salvation. Why would I be ashamed of what is God's power for salvation? Why would I be ashamed of this exclusive gospel? He says it's God's power of salvation for everyone who believes. So it's an exclusive gospel that's open to all who would believe. So when we proclaim an exclusive gospel, we're not going out and saying, hey, if you're a certain type of person, If you're like at the top of the ladder in doing good things and believing certain things, well, then that's the gospel's for you. No, gospel's for everybody because we all need it. It's open to all who would come and believe, who call upon the name of the Lord. But it's exclusive because there's no salvation elsewhere, only in Jesus. That's why we sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. We don't sing, in Christ among others my hope is found. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, not any other stones, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, not my sum in some, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I sing. We follow an exclusive gospel. The second truth this morning, in addition to an exclusive gospel, uh, our second truth, God has determined a single plan for his mission. A single plan. I like simple plans. Just give me a few steps and we're about it. And God has made it for us. Look again at verse 14. He's laid out, call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Paul is moving very logically here. He makes the point in 13, look, salvation, you've got to call upon the name of the Lord. So the next, next, the next 
next natural question is, well, how do they call on the Lord if they've never heard of him? Verse 13 and 14, in my mind, they make better sense backwards. Because Paul is sort of, he's sort of starting and then unpacking backwards. So if you take verse 13 and 14 and you flip them, it works like this. He says, first of all, people have to hear the good news of Jesus. They've got to hear it. Second, they have to believe it. And then thirdly, they call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. That's what Paul says. That's how it works. I hear the good news of Jesus. I believe that good news about Jesus. And then I call upon him for salvation. So in that sort of thinking, Paul says, well, how do you get to step three if you don't have that step one? How can they call? How can they believe? How can they look to Jesus if they haven't heard in the first place? You see how simple God's plan for salvation really is? Right? It's, if we could do this, I don't want to be you know, sort of blasphemous, but the idea that God is up in heaven, an angel comes up, and he's making his plans, and the angel says, hey, God, heard about your plan for Jesus. It's really good. Sounds great. How are you going to get the word out there? What do you have going for you? And God says, we're just going to do word of mouth. That's all we're going to do. I feel like the angel would be like, that's it? That's this amazing plan, and you're going to leave it up to word of mouth? And God says, yeah. The single plan for God's mission, to make the truth of the gospel known to all people, is you and me and an open mouth. Proclamation. Simple sharing with people who God is, what he's done for us, and what he's called us to. The reality is, lost people must hear the gospel in order to be saved. We've already made the case that you don't get it on the curve, you don't get it by trying hard in somewhere else. You have to hear the gospel in order to believe the gospel, in order to be saved. And if you have to hear it to believe it to be saved, then it needs to be proclaimed. It must be proclaimed. Many of you are probably familiar with uh, missionary William Carey, the story of him going to a meeting of all these Baptist leaders, and he's making the case for overseas missions. He says, look, people are lost over there. They don't have the gospel. We've got to go and tell them, which that seems like normal things for us because we think about all our missionaries that we support. But apparently in this day, that was pretty wild thinking. And at one point, one of the men just gets frustrated with him and stands up and says, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. William Carey, you've just gone too far. If God wants to save those people over there, he'll take care of it. He doesn't need you and me. That was the sort of thinking there. And I think that attitude is somewhat alive and well today in many of our churches. We talk as Christians about how important it is that people hear the gospel. Lost people, man, they, they need Jesus. Oh, man, that's the only way. They, he's the way, the truth, and life. And those people never heard, they need to hear Jesus. And yet we don't take part in making sure they hear the gospel. We talk of the need for proclamation, the need for people to hear, and then we say, someone else will do it. It's the idea that William Carey heard. Well, if God wants to, wants to do it, he'll take care of it. Yes, he will, actually. But the way he is determined to take care of it is by you and me, going and proclaiming to people, telling them the good news, because they must hear in order to believe and be saved. Okay, so God not only has determined how we are saved, that's in the person and the work of Jesus, 
but he's also determined how we experience that salvation, namely through the hearing of it from those who have already experienced it. All right, think about our mission statement. Cross point, we exist to make disciples of all nations. That's what God has called us to do as a, as a universal church. That's what we're focused on here at Cross Point. Well, last year in January, I preached on the Great Commission from Matthew 28. I know you memorized it. You played on repeat every day, so I probably don't even need to remind you. But if you've forgotten, I unpacked what it means to make disciples. And I talked about how there's really sort of two, two works that are done in there, where Jesus says, make disciples, and he says, baptizing and teaching. And teaching makes sense, teach them how to follow Jesus. But I talked about how baptizing isn't just go out and splash water on people, but that he has something bigger in mind. In fact, I made this statement. When Jesus commands his followers to make disciples, he has in mind not merely the physical act of baptizing someone with water, but the entire ministry of evangelistic proclamation. I made that argument that what he means when you're making disciples by baptizing and teaching is essentially the calling them work of evangelism, come to Jesus, get baptized, and then the teaching work, now that you've come, how do I walk in Christ? That those are two sides of the same coin of making disciples. Now, if we follow that, if making disciples includes evangelistic proclamation, which I argue it does, then here's the challenging conclusion for all of us this morning. If we are not proclaiming the gospel, then we are not making disciples. That's the simple truth of it. If we are not proclaiming the gospel, then we are not making disciples. And that goes corporately and individually. If we as a church do great teaching ministries and all the things, but we don't tell how to come to know Christ, then we're not making disciples. We're making great students, but we're not making disciples. And if you and I as individual believers are not about proclaiming the gospel, if we're not about telling people how they can know Jesus, then you and I are not making disciples. Okay? We, we can't outsource this. We can't say, well, I really like the teaching part. I don't care so much for the evangelism part, so I'll do half and then you take half and together we make disciples. It doesn't work that way. If we don't share the gospel with people, if we're not proclaiming the truth of Jesus, and then helping to teach and shepherd and grow those who come to Christ, then we're not making disciples. My question for all of us this morning, just to, to take and to chew on, is how am I proclaiming the gospel? Right? We talk about making disciples. I think all of us would say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing discipleship. Well, how are we proclaiming the gospel? Because that's part of it. When you get opportunities to share the gospel, do you take them? Or do you say, someone else could do it, I don't, I'm not the greatest speaker, someone else could do it better, that's not really my thing, that's not my gift. Or do you say, here's my moment, here's my Colossians 4, door is open, let's do this, and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. In order to be proclaimers of the gospel, we also need to be able to proclaim the gospel. Now, I know that sounds simple, what I mean by that is, if you are given the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, be ready and know what you're going to say. Uh, I've talked to so many people in the church who talk about sort of lamenting the, the thing. It's like, I, I feel like I never get chances to share the gospel. And I said, okay, well, what would you say if you did? And they got nothing. 
I mean, I've, all of my adult teaching life in the church, I've encountered people who have been in the church for decades, proclaim personal faith in Jesus that they're saved, but when put on the spot to explain the gospel, they got nothing. And that's a problem, church. Why would we pray for open doors, Colossians 4, if we've got nothing to say when the door opens? I'm not saying that we all have to be PhDs in theology or carry around a book to read somebody and some treatise on Jesus. But we need to be able to tell people who is God. Who are we? How can we know him? What's the problem in knowing him? What's the solution in Jesus? What's the promise for eternity if we have Christ? We need to be able to explain those basic truths so that when the opportunity comes up, we actually have something to say. And that's a challenge for all of us this morning. If God gives you an open door, are you ready to walk through it? Be a verbal proclaimer. I was thinking about this. You could also be a written proclaimer. You know, some of us are better writers than we are speakers. I like to write because I can edit and I can change and I can really make sure it's what I want to say. Some of you may, may, may do this or may have in the past used gospel tracts. Now, tracts sometimes get a bad name. Some of them are cheesy and, and terrible. But there are a lot of good ones. And if you just have a moment with somebody, you don't have time to really unpack anything or share, but you want to leave them with this truth of Jesus, give them a tract. Something that is a clear explanation of the gospel. You know, maybe put your number on it and say, hey, look, I don't have time to talk right now. It's good to meet you. Take this. If you're interested, just read it. Give me a call. I'd love to talk. That's a valid proclamation there. Maybe you've got a family member that you want to share the gospel with, but you know if you sit down and try to talk, things are going to go south. Emotions, flare, all the things with family. How about writing them a letter? Just write a letter and say, look, I, I don't know if I could say this all out in the moment, but I love you and I care about you and I want, I want you to hear it. So I'm going to write it to you. Old school, pen and paper. And send it to them. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a power in, uh, in the written word, the written proclamation of Jesus. My ministry hero, some of you may know, is Samuel Zwamer, uh, a missionary to Muslims in the late 1900s, early, um, late 1800s, early 1900s. And he gave himself to proclamation. I mean, he's preaching 10 times a week, talking to different Muslim leaders. I mean, just all the things. But what I like about Zwamer is that he was also a person who trusted and realized the power of the written word. And here's what he said about it. He said, the printed page is a missionary that can go anywhere and do so at minimum cost. It enters closed lands and reaches all strata of society. It does not grow weary. It needs no furlough. It lives longer than any missionary. It never gets ill. It penetrates through the mind to the heart and conscience. It has and is producing results everywhere. It has often lain dormant, yet retained its life and bloomed years later. Sometimes you don't have an opportunity to share. Sometimes there are places where we just can't go. Zwamer said, send a, send a written text. It needs no furlough. It won't get sick. won't run out of money. Just send it. So maybe for us as Crosspoint, maybe there's a way that we can be more intentional in our gospel proclamation in a written way. Not at the expense of verbal, certainly, but maybe a facet that we can, that we can use. So I think we oftentimes make evangelism harder than it has to be. Anybody feel that way? Like in, don't raise your hand, but you're, you're, you're willing to admit that, for me, evangelism in my mind just seems like this massive thing. So complex. 
and it's like I'm in a courtroom and I just have to I have to defend my case and if I mess up I go to jail like it's just this massive thing they make it harder than it has to be evangelism is really just telling people about how amazing God is that's first Peter proclaim his excellencies tell them how amazing God is what he's done for us how we've experienced him and how they can too you know one pastor said it like this he said evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread it's like hey I I found bread, and you look hungry. I want to I tell you where to find bread. It's really that simple. Don't make it too big in your mind. Because this is the one plan that God has for us, a single plan. How's Crosspoint going to tell people uh, about Jesus? We're just going to proclaim it. We're going to proclaim it from the pulpit. We're going to proclaim it in our Sunday school rooms, and we're going to compl- uh, proclaim it in our workplaces when we go out, in our home lives, wherever we are. We're going to be about God's single plan, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. God's plan of salvation, as we've seen, there's an exclusive gospel. He's got a single plan. Thirdly, lastly here, we as believers, we have a heavy responsibility, a heavy responsibility. Look again, verse 14. Uh, How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We saw in the earlier verse that God's single plan for lost people is the hearing of that message. That people must hear the gospel in order to be saved, in order to believe. But if they must hear then that puts a heavy responsibility on us who are responsible for the hearing, right? If we're the proclaimers and they must hear, then that's a heavy responsibility on us. Because here's the truth. What happens if a lost person doesn't hear the gospel? Okay, we need to look to the scriptures for this. We don't need to get sentimental about it or anything like that, but we need to look to the scripture. What happens if someone doesn't hear the gospel? Well, we've already seen Romans 3. Everybody's condemned to start with. That's not good. You move to Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. That's not good. And Romans 10, people must hear the gospel and call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So they're condemned. They don't hear the gospel. They don't call on the Lord for salvation. What happens to them? They face an eternity of God's judgment in a real literal unending hell people don't get a free pass there's no second category for people who don't hear okay you don't you don't just sort of get a free pass if like oh you didn't hear and you didn't get a chance okay fine we'll put you you can sit in the back it's fine you don't get that and i'm afraid that for far too many christians especially here in the u.s we have this thinking that says well if they didn't hear they couldn't respond, then God certainly won't hold them accountable for that. That There's got to be some second category. God's going to say, look, you did what you could. There's got to be a way in. They were sincere in what they believed, so surely God won't judge them. Now, if we really think that, you know what we ought to do today? We ought to call every single missionary on the field and tell them to come home. 
Because the last thing we would want them to do is to actually tell people about Jesus. Because once you hear about it, now you're responsible for it. If we really believe that not hearing the gospel is somehow a workaround into heaven, then man, bring the missionaries home, we'll stop preaching, everybody just go home and don't talk, and everybody will be fine. Because no one will hear the gospel, no one will be responsible, and everybody gets to go to heaven. But that's not how it works. Paul teaches in Romans 1 that everybody is already condemned. So it's not like you hear the gospel, reject it, now you're condemned. Paul says, no, no, we're already condemned. Romans 1, well, they don't know about Jesus. Fine, they know enough about the creator to say, I don't want to worship him, I'll worship the creature. That's Paul's argument in Romans 1. That everybody's in that camp. And you think, well, that's Paul. He was kind of like hard on people. Okay, what about Jesus? Our favorite verse, John 3, 16. God so loved the world. Amen. You ever read verse 17 and 18? They're already condemned. They don't believe in Christ. They are condemned already. So what lost people need is to hear the good news of salvation in Christ. Okay, we, we can't just sort of let them go and say, well, they're, they're doing what they can. No, what they need to hear is the good news of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood on the cross. And that's why we as believers have a heavy responsibility. The reality that lost people won't be saved without hearing the gospel, that's what fuels our zeal for missions, right? We don't go to Ecuador to get a tan. We don't go to Ecuador because we just like having giant bugs in our rooms, right? We don't, I don't, we don't go to, uh, to Uganda and train the churches to reach lost people there because we just really like cold showers. No, we go because we recognize that there are lost people going to hell if they don't hear the gospel. And that zeal for lost people hearing, that's what fuels our missions. That's why we spend a ton of money to go to Uganda and Ecuador. Because we care. Because there are lost people there. And the only people that are going to reach them are the believers there. And they need strengthening and they need training so that they can reach out and see more people come in. We saw it this morning. Jesus said the, the fields are white as a harvest, but the laborers are few. Realizing that lost people face eternity without Christ, that's, what, that's why we get up and we say they need to hear. They need to hear. But it may amaze you and it, it startles me in some sense when you think about Christians, people in our churches, and their views toward evangelism. Let me share with you one more statistic. This one will, uh, this one will shock you. But the reality is, it turns out that many Christians don't like evangelism. It's not just that they don't do it, they don't like it. They don't think it's right. 2019, Barna did this study where they asked people about evangelism. They, this is how they phrased it. They said, um, do you think it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith? Sort of a wordy way to say evangelism. You think it's okay to tell people about Jesus and hope that they leave what they were in and, and follow Jesus? Okay? Again, this is people who identify as Christians. For the millennials, that's my generation, the 30s and the 40s, 47% said, yeah, we, we shouldn't do that. That's not right. Half of the people my age said, it's not right that we should go and tell people, like, hey, you got to leave your stuff and follow our stuff. Okay? Gen X, that's my parents' generation. 
27%. So a fourth of them said, well, that's just not right that we would tell people that what they, their dearly held beliefs are wrong and that they should come and follow mine. Uh, older folk, y'all are not out of the, the woods here. Boomers and elders, 19% and 20%. Now let's just take that at face value. That means that on any given Sunday, let's take here at Crosspoint, half of the people in here my age say that we shouldn't even do evangelism. A fourth of the people my parents' age, that's you in your 50s and 60s, say we shouldn't do evangelism. And a fifth of everybody older than that says we shouldn't do it. What does that say about our understanding of the need for salvation? What does that say about our thinking of, of the exclusive nature of the gospel? What does that say about our re- thinking that, look, there's, a, there's hell coming. There's reality. At, it, you know, hell is at stake here. When we say, well, I just, you know, it just kind of seems kind of like imperialistic, you know, to go in and say, hey, you can't believe that anymore. You need to believe what I believe. You see, that's the, that's the culture talking. That's the outside influencing how we think in here. But as we've seen already, the truth of Jesus is exclusive. There's only one way. And the only way people know about it is for you and me to actually go tell them. Right? Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Nobody likes to be the person, well, I, I say that. I started to say nobody likes to be the person telling people they're wrong, but some of us do. We like to be that person. But when it comes to evangelism, like, yes, it can be awkward. It can be some hostility when we say, hey, look, I know you you believe this, and every generation of your family's all, already always believed it, but it's wrong, and you need to follow Jesus. That can be awkward. That can be difficult. Culture says, don't do it. Who are you to say? Jesus says, you're my followers, and I have said that I am the only way. Church, we can't listen to the culture around us. It's not wrong to proclaim the gospel. Um, we saw last week, Pastor West was talking about how in our, our um, mission statement, how we make disciples, and you remember the two reasons? We do it for the glory of God and the good of all people, yes. And he talks about how when we're proclaiming the gospel— we're glorifying God, and people are hearing it, and they're being saved. That is for their good, right? Because the, the greatest good we could do for somebody is to tell them how they can know the creator of the universe, how they can have that condemnation removed, how they can have eternal life in Jesus. That's the greatest good that we could do for someone. The greatest good we could do is to introduce them to Jesus. They can know him in a, a personal and a saving way. Now, quickly, I do want to answer the question that may be bouncing around in our minds, which is, well, okay, you say that they, they need to hear in order to be saved. Well, what happens if, if it's on me and I have an opportunity to share the gospel and I just panic, I freeze, I fold? What happens to those people that I'm supposed to go tell them the gospel, but now I didn't? What happens to them? Well, what I will say is no one will face hell because of my disobedience or because of your disobedience. Okay, no, that is putting on ourselves not a heavy responsibility, but an un, uh, unreasonable guilt. Okay, if you have a moment where people, you have an opportunity to share the gospel and you just, just clam up. Okay, the moment has passed. But that person is not now going to go to hell because you didn't share the gospel in the moment. OK? 
okay, don't, don't put that on you. Remember, they are already headed to hell for their own sins. Okay, you're, you're not shoving them further down the road. They're already on that road. By the way, I think that's one of the things that could sort of help us take some of the anxiety away from evangelism. You can't make it any worse. And I don't mean to say that sort of flippantly, but they're already condemned. They're already headed for hell. You think like, oh, it's got to be a perfect message. Just tell them something about Jesus. You can't make it any worse. You can only make it better by pointing them to Christ. People's eternal destiny is not tied to our momentary obedience or disobedience. Because lost people are not saved because of my obedience. Right? Lost people are not saved because I was obedient in the moment to share the gospel. Lost people will be saved because of Christ's obedience. Amen? You and I will be saved not because we were ready in the moment and we walked through the open door and we did just fine. No, it's because of Christ's obedience. So if I have a moment to share and I don't take it, I've not condemned them. I've not sent them away. I've not done the harm or anything like that. The reality is if God is calling them, he's going to put somebody in their path to share the gospel with them. But you know what? You know what you do miss out on? If you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone and you don't take it, you know what you do miss out on? Let me give you three things. Number one is the blessing of obedience. The blessing of obedience. Isn't it better to obey than to disobey? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. One of them is to proclaim the gospel. We have this opportunity and we say, ah, it's not me, someone else can do it, and we just sort of go on. What we miss out on is the, the, the joy, the blessing of obedience. You know, sure, we may share the gospel and it just went terrible. They got mad, they got whatever, or I, I sort of stumbled, it wasn't my best, I kind of forgot a word. But you know what? I was obedient. I, I did what Jesus called me to do. Secondly, we miss out on the partnership in the mission of God. The partnership in that mission where God says, look, I'm calling them out. First Peter, I'm calling them out of darkness. I called you out, I saved you. Now I put you back in to call into the darkness to those who are still there. And when we don't do evangelism, we're missing out on that partnership. That opportunity to work with God in this amazing plan to draw people to himself. And thirdly, we miss out on the joy of the harvest. The reality is, when you share the gospel, you might not be the person that God uses to bring them at that moment to salvation. You know, Paul talks about planting and watering and the tilling and all the things. I don't, I'm not a gardener, but all the steps in the process till you get the, the fruit at the end. We don't know where we are in that process. But I can tell you this, if you are nowhere in that process, then you miss out on the joy of the salvation, the joy of the harvest when that person finally does come to Christ. Because reality is, when you see someone come to Christ, if you had a part where you were able to share a little bit, you might not be the person who was there when they finally confessed, but you can have that joy of saying, man, I was, I was one step. I was one step in the process. God used me. There's a joy in the harvest. And Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. Right? Let's be laborers so that when the harvest comes, we can take that joy that we were working, we were doing it. We weren't just sitting to the side. Church, let's not miss out 
When it comes to evangelism, don't say someone else will do it. Let's do it. Don't say someone else can do it better. It's not a competition. Let us do it and do it well. Let us faithfully and boldly proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the amazing truths about the gospel is that God not only saves us, that's great news, but he actually uses us in his plan to save other people. Isn't that amazing? Like, look at the disciples, and what a ragtag bunch of just yahoos at times. I mean, you think about the people you're going to sort of change the world with, those 12 would not be on the list. And yet God uses them. He calls them out of darkness and then uses them. And you look at, you read Acts, look at what happens as the gospel spreads. Same thing for you and me. God calls us, a bunch of yahoos, out of darkness, not just to save us and sort of leave us here until heaven, but actually to join him in the work of calling other yahoos out of darkness to be saved. Isn't that amazing? To participate in a work with the creator of the universe to see people come to know him. It's our responsibility. We can't shirk it. We can't drop the ball on this. Because God's only plan for salvation is for the church, that's us, to proclaim the gospel. That's the only plan. We don't have a plan A and B. That's it. We are the church. Our plan is to share and proclaim. That's why Paul says there in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who stand by and watch. How beautiful are the feet of those who said someone else could do it better. How beautiful are the feet of those who said, that's not my responsibility. No, it's how beautiful are the feet of those who do what? Preach the good news. Now, let's not get caught up. He's not talking about like preachers paid working for the church. It just simply means people who herald. You know that guy at the office who walks in on Monday and says, everybody listen up. Here's what I did. And within 30 seconds, everybody knows the great thing he did that weekend. That's what we're supposed to do. How beautiful are the feet of those people who walk in and herald the good news. That's what we're supposed to do. Because every believer has the responsibility to proclaim the gospel so that unbelievers may hear, believe, and be saved. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are grateful for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Ragtag, lost, just not worth it. And yet you loved us and you forgive us and you call us out of darkness. And as if that weren't enough, you actually put us to work to reach other people. What a joy. What a blessing to be able to participate in that. Help us as a church, help us as individual believers here at Crosspoint to be about evangelism proclaim the gospel, looking for those open doors, the different ways that we can get that truth of Jesus to lost people. Whether our words, maybe our written words, maybe it's tracts or a letter, maybe it's sending Bibles to, to lands where they don't have Bibles. Whatever it is, getting the good news of Jesus to the lost because they need to hear it. Help us to be bold. Help us to be unashamed of the exclusive truth of Christ. And help us to rest on that truth and proclaim that truth for your glory and for the good of others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.